in rebellion against what God has instituted, from those who do so will bring judgment on themselves. Government is a part of God's plan. Um, I don't think I gave Kara this, but it's gonna Paul's gonna go on a little bit later in Romans 13 and say, therefore it's necessary to submit to the authorities not only because of possible punishment, but also as a matter of conscience. Our conscience should tell us that we need to submit to government. This is also why you pay taxes. For the authorities are God's servants who give their full time to governing. Give to everyone what you owe them. If you owe taxes, pay taxes. If revenue, then revenue. If respect, then respect. If honor, then honor. And to write, um, New Testament scholar puts it this way. He says, God wanted his world to be wisely ordered, ordered, and he wanted that to happen through wise, obedient human God wants good, appropriate, wise government. Now, if you're anything like me, you're like, okay, sure, that's what God wants, but Bryce, look around. This is clearly not what's happening. Good, appropriate, wise government. Um, our system seems to have wandered away from that. And I think it's important as we wrestle with that to recognize that when Paul is writing this letter, it's after he's gone through a whole lot with regards to the government. He's been stoned and left for dead been imprisoned, um, been beaten, been arrested, been anything that you can think of that could happen to someone short of death at this point in his life has happened to Paul. And he's saying, no, government is a part of God's plan. So what do we do with that? I don't, I've never actually talked to Paul. I would like to do that, but I haven't. I imagine if I got to, he might say something along the lines of, Bryce, look at your life. Are you telling me you get it right all the time? No, of course you don't. But God has called you. God has created you with a purpose. You are a part of God's plan. I wonder if the government can't have that same principle applied, right? Um, look at our government. Does it get it right all the time? No, let's not be ridiculous. And yet, government is a part of God's plan. And it's not something that we just get to walk away from and discuss as much as there's days when maybe we'd like to. The thing, second thing we need to know is that even as government is good and it's a part of God's plan, God calls nations and governments to account. God is king at the end of the day, and that he's king over any government, maybe he's done including ours. We don't call God to account. God calls us to account. 1 Corinthians 15 um, says it this way. Um, then the end will come, and he, Jesus, or when he, Jesus, hands over the kingdom of God um, to the Father after he has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power. Now when scripture says dominion, authority, and power, it is talking about, among other things, political power. Yes, there's more to it. There's spiritual power, and there's um, just people that abuse other people and all that, um, but part of it is regular, run-of-the-mill human government. After all that passes away, and God hands, or Jesus hands the kingdom over to God, um, then we're going to be left with what's left standing, and it's not going to be our government. I, I think that's hard for some of us to hear maybe at the end of the day, the thing that lasts is not America. It's just not. Um, I'll just leave it at that for now. For Jesus must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death, for he has put everything under his feet. So, okay, Bryce, hang on. America is not God's enemy. Okay, I hope we're right, all right? I'm not saying that that's what's going on, right? Um, but I am saying that there's some things that go on in this country that aren't okay, and that God will judge, right? And that's a good thing. It really is. Um, equally, there's some things that go on in other parts of the world that God's not okay with and that God will judge. And just as in our own lives, we have to get in line with what God is doing as societies, as nations, at the end of the day, we have to get in line with what God is doing and who God is, the reality that God is king. Anything that 
just pulling us out of that is something that God will judge. And it's not going to be a pretty thing at the end of the day. It's not going to be a nice, like, hey, you should work on this. It's going to be a, hey, this has to go right now. And if you're going to keep hanging on to it, you're going with it. That's the bottom line. Revelation um, 20, 11 to 12 says this. John, um, seeing his vision of um, Jesus and just kind of getting a window past the mundane and into the spiritual realm, he talks about that he saw a great white throne and the one sitting on it. The earth and the sky fled from his presence, but they found no place to hide. And then he saw the dead, both great and small, standing before God's throne. And the books were opened, including the book of life. And the dead were judged according to what God had done in the books. The dead were judged. You, me, Biden, Trump, anyone else you care to throw in there. At the end of the day, we all stand before God as a judge. And he's the one that says what lasts and what doesn't. God is king. God is on the throne whether you believe in him, accept him, and submit to him or not. This is one of the most basic claims of the Christian faith. And yet, in America, we often live our lives as if we can accept the life that God offers without submitting to the rule that God exercises. We cannot. The Christian faith and the fact that God is king, that God is on the throne, are finally inextricably intertwined. You can't have one without the other. They have to go together. And if you find that you're trying to hold on to one without the other, you're holding on to nonsense. That's just what it is. John goes on a little later in Revelation. He says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the old heaven and the old earth had disappeared, and the sea was gone. And I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven like a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And then I heard a loud shout from the throne saying, Look, God's home is now among his people. He will live with them, and they will be his people. God himself will be there with them. He will wipe every tear from their eyes, and there will be no more death, or sorrow, or crying, or pain. All these things are gone forever. This is our hope. And it's not the hope of, oh, I hope someday it happens, but it's the hope of it's coming. We don't know when it's going to arrive, but it's coming. We know it's going to get here. God will be with us. We will be his people, and he will be present with us. And when that happens, all these things we've been talking about, this like piece of judgment about our own lives and governments and all that, this is why things have to be judged. Because if you start bringing selfishness into this, it just doesn't work. If you start bringing divisiveness into a place where God is with his people, we are as people, it just doesn't work. It breaks down, right? And so that has to be judged first. And then we'll get to this. The kingdom of God stands over and above the realm of human affairs. God calls us to account, not the other way around. God calls our democratic ideals to account. God calls the divisiveness, fear-mongering, running as challengers, he calls them all to account. God calls our personal political convictions to account. At the end of the day, God calls America to account, not the other way around. Hanging on to that is part of what it means to be a follower of Jesus in an election year. We get caught up in these narratives offered by either side of our political spectrum, and we believe that that narrative is the arbiter of what's right or fair or good. God, we missed it. We need to get back on track. It's not about being a Democrat or Republican or Independent or whatever else you want to throw out there. It's about being a follower of Jesus. Michael Byrd, another New Testament scholar, um, he says to follow Jesus will inevitably require us to walk away from long-held to reorder our lives around a new constellation of values shaped by Jesus' teaching, his example, 
his death, his resurrection, and his lordship over all things. What a great quote. I mean, not just Jesus' teaching, I think the part that challenges me, um, but his example, um, his death. When, back in 1 Corinthians, when we're talking about how Jesus hands off the kingdom of God to God, right? The tool that he uses to um, have all the different authorities and things submit to him, it's the cross. It's not the sword. It's the cross. And I think that's another thing that we can remember as we're following Jesus in an election year. Um, the way that God calls us to follow him is the way of the cross. Not the way of the sword or the AK-47 or the hunting rifle, right? Um, not the way of um, hammering someone else with, well, you're not a moral person because you won't let me take your AK-47. Not any of that. The cross. And that's something very, very different. It's something that I don't think I've heard come into our political conversations from happening here. And yet that's the foundation from which God speaks to us, the foundation to which God calls us. As we're following Jesus in an election year, I think it's important to remember that God's heart, particularly this election year, um, God's heart is not for division. Proverbs 6, 16-19 tells us that there are six things that the Lord hates, seven that are detestable to him. See if you recognize any of these. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked schemes, feet that are quick to rush into evil, a false witness who pours out lies. Yes, you already talked about lying. It's a big deal, all right? Um, and a person who stirs up conflict in the community. We find ourselves in this moment as a country where many of our leaders keep calling us to offense and to outrage. They want to tap into this energy that gets stirred up um, as people just get angry. And there's a place for anger. I'm not saying that anger is an inherently sinful emotion. But this act of stirring up anger and trying to use it as a motivating force for change is severely misguided. And it's not something that works if we're going to follow Jesus. God doesn't call us so much to offense or to outrage, um, at least not at first, if we're going to get there. And there is a place for that, absolutely. Um, we need to walk through some other things first. God calls us to humility first. He calls us to humility before God himself. We talked about the fear of the Lord a couple weeks ago. Um, but he calls us to humility before those who bear his image. And that's any human being yourself interacting with. We're interacting with our neighbors in a way that doesn't recognize this incredible reality that they bear the image of the living God. And we're missing something. In an election year, that's we've got to remember that. Whoever it is that you disagree with, they might be wrong. You might, you might be right. Maybe. I don't know. You might be. But the people who disagree with you bear the image of the living God. And I would encourage you to treat them like that. Before God calls us to offense or outrage, God calls us to love. The first word that God speaks into a broken, desperate world is not judgment, it's love. Before God calls us to offense or outrage, God calls us to conviction. The conviction where something rises up in our heart and says, God, yes, this world is broken. Yes, it's not okay. Yes, I'm torn apart by what's going on in our society, but God, start with me. Change what you need to change in me. And from there, let that be a starting point to your work in my neighborhood instead of God, start with them. 
There's a real difference there. When you wake up, I hope there's something in your heart that says, God, today, start with me. Say it again, our offense does not call God to action. God's not beholden to our offense. God does call our offense to the cross. He calls us to lay it down so we can respond, not with offense at what others are or are not doing, but with conviction at what God is calling us to do. Each and every one of us this year, God is calling and inviting us big, it might be something that looks really small from the outside, but he's inviting you into something. And if you can't hear what he's inviting you into because you're so offended at what's going on around you, you need to let go of that offense. You need to find someplace quiet. You need to say, God, let's talk about And that, by the way, is how God addresses all the brokenness that we're so worried about. He does it by starting with individuals who allow him to work in their lives and in their hearts. God calls us to something entirely different from the alternatives provided by our political systems. Looking at 1 Corinthians 15, starting in verse 20. It says, If Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen as the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead came also through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive. Each in turn, Christ, the first fruits, then when he comes, those who belong to him. And there's a lot that's going on here. What I want to focus on is this idea that in a society that offers us two alternatives, Jesus says, no, neither is any good. Neither is good enough. We need something entirely different. We need new creation. We need um, the first fruits of what Jesus is doing when he's raised from the dead. And we need a power that goes beyond people's ability to care for one another, to love one another, to act on one another's behalf, and start something entirely new in humanity. Does that make sense, what I'm saying? I'm, yes? Okay, good. I mean, it's seen a lot of heads nod. And so, as Christ steps in the world, into the world, and as he ministers to people, as he's crucified on the cross, and then as the power of God raises him from the dead, there's something that's introduced into human history that fundamentally changes everything. And that's what we need right now. We don't need a president from a different party, or we don't need four more years, or we don't need any of that. We need something much more fundamental and basic than that. We need transformation. And when God invites us into his family, when he says, I'm going to send my spirit, and my spirit is going to live in you and among you, exactly what God is wanting to do. We are called, this little church right here, we are called to live out an alternative to what the, our political system is throwing at us. We're not called to take sides. We're not called to gear up for the culture war. We're called to be that new light, that tiny little shoot of something entirely different. So what does that look like, guys? Well, a couple more um, scriptures that we can look at. Galatians 3.28 says, In Christ there is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. I'm just going to add, there's not Democrat or Republican. They really didn't have those categories when Paul wrote the New Testament. But I, it's my sincere hope that in this come. And you know what? There's good reasons to vote Republican. There's good reasons to vote Democrat. Christian reasons on both sides. There really are. If you want to talk to me about that, you don't believe you can talk to me. You can 
have a conversation about it. I hope that we can come together and say, yeah, I support this candidate, you support that candidate. I believe this is the most compelling, important thing that's going on in our nation right now. You believe this other thing is. But you know what, we all know that the bottom line, the thing that God is inviting us into is this new community that's not defined by all the things that are going wrong, but is defined by all the things that are right that God invites us into and calls us into. Right? So what are those things? You know, look at Romans 12 for a bit. This is one of those great places in the New Testament where others you can read a bunch here. Um, but maybe the first thing that we need to do is we need to be devoted to one another in love. This is Romans 12.10. Maybe we need to honor one another above ourselves as long as we agree with each other. Oh, wait, no. Maybe we need to be joyful in hope, not lose hope, because our hope is not in whatever candidate or whatever can happen. Um, our hope is not even in America being the shining light for the world over the next century. That's not our hope. Our hope is that Jesus is starting something new, that he's calling us a new community, characterized by love and filled with his Holy Spirit where we really are able to overcome our sin and our selfishness as individuals and as communities. We really are able to get some things right in that it doesn't just stop with us, but at some point God's going to come back and try to set all things right. That's our hope. Be patient in hope. Or joyful in hope. Patient in affliction. Faithful in prayer. Maybe we need to practice hospitality. Hospitality is such a weird thing in our world today. We want to sequester ourselves in our houses, right? Um, and yeah, maybe we'll have people over for dinner, but if there's any real need, we want to keep it on the outside. Um, keep it out of our walls. That idea is not only foreign to scripture, it's foreign to the culture that scripture was written in. <laughs> Hospitality costs something. It really does. Um, and I'm not saying that any one person should do any one thing, but every person should do something um, in a way that really is putting us in contact with the need that we say that we care about. I know a lot of you are already doing that. I just I have to say it. Um, hospitality is about a lot more than a dinner party. That's what I'm trying to get at. Um, maybe we should bless those who persecute us. Bless and do not curse. Oh man! So you've got all the mudslinging in politics today, and instead of hopping on that train and saying, "Yeah, um, Bullock is this, that, and the other thing. Baines is this, that, and the other thing." Maybe we need to learn to bless the people that we disagree with, especially the people that we disagree with. I know. Scripture seems to suggest that. And the Kenosa, I think, a little bit. Maybe we need to rejoice with those who rejoice, mourn with those who mourn. Instead of saying, no, that's not something you should be mourning about, you're missing the point. We should take some time and sit and listen. You know what? Yeah, there's something going on there. And I can, even if that's not the first thing on my priority list, I can feel the weight of that as I sit with you. Be mourn with those who mourn with you. We can live in harmony with one another. We cannot repay evil for evil, but be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone those who disagree with us. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. 
And if I was going to take all these things and kind of try to put a little bit of a bow on them, what I would say is God is inviting us to enter into our society, to enter into our culture as a healer, not as a fester. And when we are so trained to just knee-jerk, take offense at people who disagree with us, all we're really doing is we're letting that wound, we're contributing to that wound fester. It's not what God calls us to do. I'm not going to say any of this is easy, because it's not. It is way easier to get sucked back in. I would never blame anyone, even as I stand up here and just being pretty blunt about some things, for getting kind of sucked back into the culture war mentality. So it's something that we don't just like commit ourselves to and then find out, oh no, we messed up and our heart got wrong. I guess we can't do it. It's something that we commit ourselves to and we stumble and we stand up and we do it again and we keep going. It's okay if occasionally we mess up a little bit. It's not, I'm not giving you um, permission beforehand. I'm giving you grace after, right? <laughs> I'm glad some of us come out with that. Um, maybe we can sum that up from Hebrews 12. It says, let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfect of our faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorned its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners that you will not grow weary. to walk with you. Let me pray for us. Father, I thank you for this community. I ask that you would guide us, that you would fill us as individuals with your spirit and as a community with your spirit so that we are able to be that alternative to the empty ways of life that our world and our political system offers that you would breathe upon us a new growth to come out of that. You would do something new today. Father, I do pray for our leaders. I pray for President Trump and those on his team right now who have contracted this virus. I ask that you would be with them, that you would help them to heal well and live. I pray for Joe Biden. I pray for Kamala Harris as they represent a part of our nation in political debates in recent elections. I ask that you would help them to represent and to lead in a way that points toward the things that you have for our nation. I pray for Nancy Pelosi. I pray for um, McConnell. I pray for Sean. I pray for um, John Roberts and those on the Supreme Court, all those in positions of authority positions of government in our nation, God. It's my belief that you have put things within the hearts and within the stories of everyone in this nation, everyone in a place of political prominence. And God, I ask that you would work on those individuals and that those things that you have placed within them would begin to shine through Father, I thank you that you're not done with this nation, that you're not done with America, and that there's so many wonderful things about it. I ask that you would continue to bless who we are and continue to challenge us to become the nation that you invite us to be instead of to rest on who we think we've been in the past. And God, I thank you that at the end of the day, our hope does not rest on this nation or any, any party or any individual. But our hope you, Jesus, were raised from the dead, and that you have placed your spirit into human history, that you are bringing redemption, you are bringing healing, and at the end of the day, there will be a decisive break 
these things that we do to drag us down, whether they're personal sin or um, provision within a nation, would be left behind. Love you and we thank you.